this is episode 104 of Alohomora for October 4th, 2014. Welcome to our newest episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Kat Miller. And I'm Michael Harley. And our very special guest today uh, is Senia, all the way from Denmark. And she has been waiting to be on the show for a very long time. Senia, say hi to the listeners. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me on the show. Tell us a bit about yourself and your history with Harry Potter, what, what house you're in. Oh, geez, do you have five years? Um, I'm from Denmark. <laughs> and you I have am, about two minutes. I have two minutes. All right, I, I can cut it down. I'm called Senia. I am 22 years old. Uh, I live with my boyfriend, uh, and we've been together for almost nine years, and we're getting married this summer. Oh, congratulations. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> we're very happy. Um, I'm studying to be um, a caretaker for people with uh, alcohol problems or taking uh, people who take drugs or... Young people who's in problems or diagnosed with uh, borderline and stuff like that. So a very hard job, but I I cannot wait to be done. And I'm done in one year or so. Um, And I'm a Ravenclaw, of course, because I'm the nerd. (laughs) Um, um, I mean, I think we're all nerds. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. But, you know, before Pottermore, I was like, of of course, I'm a Ravenclaw. That's where I belong. And when Pottermore came and I was sorted into Ravenclaw. I was so happy because, yay, it's true. And Rowling says so. So, yeah. Um, And I've known Harry Potter, I think, basically all my life. My mother read the books to me when I was little. And then when I could read myself, I started reading them instead um, of her reading to me. Um, So, yeah, it's like my childhood, my my teenage years, and now my adulthood. So, yeah. And I'm assuming, did you read them? Did you read the English versions or did you read the version? Actually, no, I've never read the English books. I have to admit. So when I had to be on this podcast, I had to find the English chapter because I have the ebooks from Pottermore because they had this offer if you bought all seven of them. Um, So I've read this chapter in English. So I had all the names uh, because, of course, they changed it for, for the Danish versions. Oh, that is so interesting. You're going to have to inform us on some of the the changes for the Danish edition. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's basically uh, the teacher's names. Um, like Ombridge, she's not called Ombridge. In the Danish version, she's called Nukia, which means that you look down on people in uh, in Danish. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. Symbolism right here. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. So we're yeah. going to be finding out, a, we're going to be learning a lot on this episode. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, we are. And we are going to be learning a lot in chapter 26, Seen and Unforeseen, which listeners, we want to make sure you read that chapter before you listen to the episode so you can get the fullest experience from our discussion. Before we get to that discussion, we are going to talk about some of your comments from last episode. The first comment comes on the topic of the Azkaban mass breakout, and this comes from Looney Lauren. On the topic of the mass breakout of Azkaban, maybe Voldemort only had the Dementors set the Death Eaters free. He could have possibly bribed the Dementors that helped him allow these ten to escape, and just have them not worry about the rest. We know that the Dementors were happy to oblige to what Voldemort wanted, and they just did as he asked, which was to allow the Death Eaters to escape. 
And she continues the thought in a lower comment. The ministry is doing everything they can to prove that Voldemort is not back. By isolating only the Death Eaters that escaped, this is drawing attention to Voldemort and his possible return at that moment. I feel like if other prisoners broke out, the ministry would mention them, maybe only for the reason of drawing attention from the Death Eaters that escaped, since 10 Death Eaters escaping and nobody else seems highly suspicious, although they did do a good job of laying the blame on Sirius. <laughs> but this was a very good argument, the fact that yeah. um, there were not other people who broke out, which I guess was a pretty, it was something that people were discussing back, certainly back and forth on the main site. Yeah, I, and... Listeners, you're going to hear me probably say a lot of points that I probably said last week, but, <laughs> but that you didn't get to hear. Um, so here's my second chance at it. But uh, my thought, um, and I know we had kind of discussed this and kind of came to this conclusion, is that Voldemort doesn't really have a need to break anybody else out because this yeah. is, he's not looking to start the war yet. He's, he's concentrating on a very small project, you could say. And he, he needs this, his people. Yeah, he's and as we'll see in the upcoming chapter, he's released people who can specifically help him with this very specific mission at the ministry. Um, Voldemort's not one to just kind of not, you know, to just do a general idea and then go with the flow. That's more Harry's way of doing things. Voldemort is very specific about how he carries things out. Um, and he was he's trying to quietly kind of just do what he needs to do. And I think breaking everybody out of Azkaban would have been a bigger mistake on his part. That would have, I think that would have sent a different message to the wizarding world than breaking out just the people he needed. I was just thinking about this. I wonder why he didn't try and go more stealth mode, kind of um, like learning from Barty Crouch Jr.'s how he escaped with the polyjuice potion and the like. Wouldn't that have been even more, oh, well, I guess stealthy? keeping it more of a secret to polyjuice potion everybody out of Vascavan. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i mean the people that he wanted yeah why not hmm. i'm sure there are people who would gladly go sit in Azkaban for him i kind of feel like most of the people who would are already in it right yeah. like the ones the Maybe. ones the ones who are out are the ones who have kind of like are like lucius types who kind of were like oh i i, I i'm not actually bad I'm 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 a good guy. So <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But he also like Voldemort being the obviously full of a lot of pride probably in some ways wants people to know that things are like moving and this chaos to happen um that he's like ascending again even though the ministry is actively trying to persuade people otherwise. Mm-hmm. Well, it's almost like he knows he's got the daily prophet and ministry in his hands. And he's, I think Voldemort's almost aware of how they're going to report it because the whole thing with it being serious is to his advantage because they're blaming it on somebody who has nothing to do with him. And they're targeting Sirius more than Voldemort really um, in that article. So and because the they're stupid. Because and they're that's their last resort, you know, because Everything right here, they are losing the control. The ministry is saying stuff, and Harry is saying stuff, and everybody is arguing. And this is the last thing, you know, we can always have this enemy, and that could be Sirius Black, and then everybody is against him. You know, a common enemy, that's the best thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The next comment comes on the topic of Hermione using Rita for the Quibbler story. This comes from Minerva Lupin. 
It was a brilliant move on Hermione's part to combine the quibbler with Rita Skeeter. If it had been any other journalist writing the article on Harry and then having it being published by the quibbler, no one would have taken it seriously, thinking it is just another phony article of no consequence. Yet have a renowned journalist of Rita's fame writing and publishing the same article in the quibbler, and everyone will want to read it. It gives credibility to the magazine, which has not such a good reputation, and since it is Skeeter writing it, everyone will believe her. We just finished Goblet of Fire, where everything she wrote was taken as pure gold and never questioned. The fact that this will be the first thing she has written and published in months, it will make people even more curious and will have them lining up to get their own copy. That is a brilliant way to ensure that people will finally get the untainted truth and be made wiser to the grave situation at hand and thus be a bit more prepared for the war to come. You have an infamous journalist under your control, so why not use her for your benefit? (laughs) Oh, yeah. So it's interesting because basically you have two absurd extreme, well, they're on the same extreme, but two absurd um, things with the quibbler being a not too believable paper, uh, magazine in general, and Skeeter. I, I don't know if I totally agree that everyone takes her word as gold. I think people enjoy it as sensationalists, but the fact that we have this sensationalist um, journalist and this um, not too believable magazine in general combining to somehow pro- provide the most honest um, article is a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, we're putting two pieces of insanity together and making something logical. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> like that's I, it, it, that's something I've pondered through many rereads and up to this one, this this has made the most this time around. It's made the most sense to me what Hermione did. It actually the brilliance of what Hermione did really hit me because when I first read it, I was like, why does everybody believe this story in the quibbler like all of a sudden? Like, why is why does this work? Um, but I think Minerva Lupin's comment is an excellent analyzation of why it's it seems like it shouldn't work yeah but it does i was just gonna say it's yeah. almost as if two wrongs in this instance actually do make a right mm-hmm. right yeah and i think the point that i had never really thought about but that minerva lupin draws out is that skeeter hasn't written in so long and the wizarding world in britain is so used to reading her material material so i mean it would be like a very renowned journalist you know in our world stop doing what they're doing for so long and then suddenly have this groundbreaking piece, of course you would rush to go see it. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of like a good example. I'm not thinking of a good one right now that isn't political, but um, (laughs) that's such a good idea. I mean, a a good reasoning because uh, like I said, I don't think everyone takes Skeeter's every word for gold because I think most people know she embellishes, but to be absent from the game that long and to come back um, is a big invitation for people to pick up the piece. Mm Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, Senia? Do we get to read the article in the book? I don't remember what, right now because it sounds like if... I, I uh, Once again, I don't know if we get to read it, but it sounds like Rita is actually writing something true with this article, not this his, his eyes with tears and stuff, you know, this feeling <laughs> thing she's used to. This is actually a good article. This is a good um, journalist writing this article. And that's the power of Hermione, you know. She makes her write this proper article because... She knows stuff about her. That is a worthwhile point because, no, we don't get to read the article. Mm -hmm. Um, We just assume from the text that it is truthful and from Hermione's insistence that Rita not embellish. Um, So, which I imagine was... She must have spare quills that aren't quick quotes quills in her bag. Um, Hermione borrowed her one, you know. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, we, we have to assume that the article does actually report the straight up facts, which would be unusual for, it would be interest. It would have been interesting to read the article just to see the change in Rita's writing style. Though I'm sure um, she still has some of her style because there would have had to been some sort of leeway because if it was completely cold and um, just like completely objective piece, it wouldn't have seemed as believable because if it doesn't sound like Rita's usual writing to at least some degree, then it loses the, you know, authenticity to it. Mm -hmm. So there's probably a little bit of um, embellishing probably on Harry while he's talking to her. I I sit amongst the drunks here in the three broomsticks (laughs) with Harry Potter, the boy who lived, his green eyes brimming against the dull colors of Hogsmeade. And this Something is when like Hermione that. punched her with a with yeah. a <laughs> yeah. Stuck. All right, and the final comment comes on the topic of Harry and Cho's date from Quibble Quaffle, which I can't imagine saying that five times fast, but um, <laughs> when I first read this book, I was in my last couple of years of primary school, so between 9 and 11, around about, and I found the date seen hilarious, even if it left me slightly pained by all Harry's secondhand embarrassment. So I was on the other side of those teenage years, before I was even interested in dating and the like. Maybe that had something to do with it. As far as whether Harry's romantic ineptness is a male thing, I wouldn't say so. I'm a girl, and I know that I'm terrible at flirting and dating. A first date on Valentine's Day in a tea shop full of couples and little cherub things and perfume and dollies would totally freak me out. I 100% feel Harry in this chapter, and that's what makes it funny for me. <laughs> yeah, cool. What, well, okay, because I'd be interested actually to hear, uh, Senia, how you felt with this scene. Because we, we discussed last week, like, yeah, everybody's varying reactions <laughs> to the scene. So what, what were your feelings when you first read it? I, oh, I'm, I'm so afraid to say this, but you know, I love the Harry and Cho relationship. I never imagined Harry with Ginny until the last book, to be honest. Oh, snap. It never occurred to me. <laughs> I don't know why. I was blind. Um, but, you know, because my boyfriend lost his dad uh, when we were pretty young as well, this thing about losing someone that you love, you know, the, the thing about going through gr- grief when you're very young is very hard. So I think I felt something for Cho in that, that she wants this closure, as you talked about last week, but she also wants someone who says that this person understands her that it's hard to be without someone because Harry lost his parents as well. So I think Joe wants to use him as this grieving partner or something. Um, and Harry just totally misunderstands because he's like, are we going to make out because we're in this pink place with kissing couples? <laughs> and then everything just goes wrong. And, and I just felt so sorry for Joe because that's not at all what she wanted. And then, like you said last week, then she wants to make him jealous by mentioning, mentioning Cedric and, the other guy I don't remember what's called right now. Oh, Roger Davies. <laughs> Roger. Yeah, exactly. And saying, oh, he wanted me to come. And then I said, no. <laughs> and then she's just <laughs> insulted. And, oh, it's just so... I want them to be together. And they should hug. And they should be happy. And, oh, <laughs> well, do you want to get sadness. my word in on this thing since I wasn't on last week? But I will be brief because I know this is like an endless discussion. I totally understand. <laughs> like, for... Well... Harry, I mean, this is what we expect from Harry, right? I mean, he's clearly yeah. not. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, 
watching the scene and watching Harry, I'm just like, oh my god, dude, you're killing it. Um, but also, um, I'm not wasn't surprised by shows that chose action. I don't necessarily think she's wrong in acting that way, but I do think she's wrong in acting that way on the first date, like trying to incite That's jealousy um, and all this on the first date she and Harry ever go out. I think it's a little too quick to pull out those guns. So. And it's not fair to put him in that pink room at all. Yeah, especially with all the Seriously. chairs floating around. Like, get that, get that out of here. Like. Well, Cat Cat will know that I clearly I have found a kindred spirit in Xenia with my feelings on the Harry <laughs> Cho relationship. You've actually found one more. I think this is the perfect time to transition into our podcast question of the week responses oh. from last week. Oh boy. Of which, um, of course, you asked this question, which unfortunately nobody heard you ask it, but um, I will remind. Do you want to read it since it's, you know, kind of like it was last week? Oh, that is so nice. Okay, sure. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Uh (laughs) The question is, the classic moment of this chapter is, of course, Harry and Cho's disastrous state. The fandom has put a lot of blame on Cho for the failure of this relationship. But was there ever perhaps a chance for them to be compatible? What about Cho's personality might have made this relationship work? Could she have ever reached Harry in a different way? What could Harry have done better on his end of the relationship? So as I mentioned, you did have one other person on your side. <laughs> Yay! And we'll make a club. Our, yes, there you go. A club of three. Perfect. Um, and yeah. that is our first comment from Wizard or What, it says. I don't think that they were incompatible at all. In fact, I think that Cho is remarkably similar to Ginny. She's into Quidditch, is clearly brave, joining the DA in this book, The Resistance in Deathly Hallows, and loyal, see her defense of Marietta. I think this date could have gone very differently if Harry had played his cards right, though I can imagine them falling out over Marietta anyway. Okay, so she like this person started out... On your side, <laughs> and then but doesn't slowly. think they doesn't think they would last. They weren't going to go the distance. So, Michael, do you agree with that? That if they would have been able to stay together, do you think the incident with Marietta would have been too much for them? Well, interestingly, in relation to that, the the movie, even though it cuts Marietta, it the movie combines Marietta intro into one character, mm. and they fall out over that in the movie rather than the date. Right. Because Cho ends up being the one who rats out the DA. Not intentionally, but she does it through from the power of the Veritas Serum. So, yes, I do agree with that. That the, Because, as Wizard of What is saying, Cho, I think, is very loyal to Marietta. As we see, to a, to a fault. Like, she really should have known not to bring her in the first place. Because um, Marietta is definitely not, clearly not into the DA from the beginning. Um so yeah, I, I I could agree with that. I could I could see that definitely. All right. Well, then our next comment from this kid says, "I think the only way for this to possibly work would be for Harry to have worked up his courage and asked Cho to the Yule Ball before Cedric did. This way, perhaps she never would have even dated Cedric and wouldn't have been so devastated when he died." I'm a big Cedric fan. After all, he's a fellow Hufflepuff, but he really was a big killer. <laughs> Oops. In their relationship. <laughs> oh, that's the worst. Worst. <laughs> um, oh. Oh, oh my! I I, I I totally buy that things would have gone better for them, but I, I don't know if it would have still worked out in the end. But probably would have been better in the beginning. Yeah, I like to think that if Harry had gotten to them first, they might have had a fighting chance. I don't. I still don't think they would have lasted. Um, but they might have dated for a while. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, a couple non hand holding dates. <laughs> well. And, you know, what 
what a lot of people I saw pointed out in both the main discussion and the podcast question is that, um, and as Sini just mentioned earlier, Cho is looking for, because they end up running out of topics and because Cho gets a little more dramatic throughout the date, she ends up kind of trying to use Harry as this emotional crutch um, to discuss Cedric because she doesn't, the sad thing is she doesn't seem to have anybody else to talk about it with. And she thinks Harry. No one understands is quite as good as Harry. Again, he lost someone too, and he saw Cedric die for crying out loud. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's thinking that this yeah. is going to be like a good, uh, unfortunate because she is more emotional in that way. And Harry, and she's a girl. Off. Yeah, well, seriously, you know, we have made, made, oh, we talk so much about grieving and kids uh, at my study, mm. and this thing about boys not talking about when they're sad or lost someone in their family or stuff and girls are talking about it all the time this is the clash between genders which is not book. so much gender as it is just society place inflicting norms on those two genders that could be too because you know boys don't cry and stuff right because they're so. socialized not to or else they're well we could exactly. that's something i should not get into because i have a lot of feelings about that <laughs> well and harry definitely we we definitely get that kind of stereotypical portrayal from harry because he is so astonishingly clueless about this whole ordeal um so but when you think about the fact that you know it's the the she's actually trying trying to reach out to harry in that way and what people pointed out was that harry refuses to talk to her about it but then he goes down the street and talks to rita skeeter about it um yeah somebody who he has much more disdain for (laughs) um so it's it's kind of funny that and it's funny because I remember I, I falsely remembered re, like w- with previous reads of the book that there was just something that Hermione said that triggered the story out of Harry, um, but there's nothing that she really says that would seemingly convince Harry anymore. She's just like, "Are you ready?" And he's like, "I guess so," and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I guess along that same vein, um, Quibble Quaffle had a good comment about this. I thought it says. I think a big barrier in their relationship was that by Order of the Phoenix, they had both gone through a traumatic experience and were responding to it in very different ways. Harry shouts and screams. Cho cries and cries. <laughs> I think that they're both confused about what they want from this relationship. And I think at least on Harry's part, he wants to go out with Cho because it was something he wanted last year. And now it's happening. So obviously he should be jumping at the chance, right? Except, really, what each of them needs and wants has changed since last year, and they can't provide that for each other anymore. That's a good point. Mm. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. The problem that people you, change. You grow, yep. Yeah. You grow up and you go different ways sometimes. Especially after something as big as death. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But I'm I'm still all for finding that relatable ground, and they can still make it. Yeah, work. let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> we will read right this chapter. Our group of three, Senia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Us and Wizard or what? <laughs> right. And I just wanted to read this last comment from Outspoken One, just to kind of close up the discussion here. It says, "Folks." They are 15-year-old teenagers, and even though they are a wizard and a witch, relationships are fraught with disaster when young men and women are first learning about each other and themselves. Joe is perfect, as usual, (laughs) with the storytelling of the awkwardness development of teen relationships. Here's a quick rundown. Harry and Cho, then Ginny. Ron and Lavender Brown, then Hermione. Ginny and first adolescent crush on Harry, then Tom Riddle Diary, then Michael (laughs) Corner, then Dean Thomas, then Harry Potter. (laughs) Hermione and possible adolescent boyfriend before she found out she was a witch 
Joe hints about Ron, a uh, kiss on the cheek before the Quidditch match. Then Victor Crumb, then Ron Weasley. Cho and Roger Davies, then Cedric, then Harry, then Michael Corner, and then she married a muggle man, which is according to the Harry Potter wiki. In conclusion, most adolescents and teenagers work through many relationships before finding, if they ever do, their match. Except, of course, Arthur and Molly. And the quote says, it was obvious they were made for each other. So... That was quite a beautiful mapping out yeah. of relationships. Well but maybe done. doesn't cast Ginny in the most positive light. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, yeah, the uh, then and then and then. And then yeah, definitely not. I would agree with well, that. Well, some people like to argue that Ginny's actually the one who has the most realistic relationship track out of everybody. Um, I would agree actually... with that. I feel like she knew what she was doing in all of those relationships. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, there there are people who date and play the field and you know date a lot of people to figure out what they're looking for and what they're not looking for and then there are other people like my brother he met his wife at 18 and they just had their 20th wedding anniversary so congratulations just like me actually we met when i was 13 and now we're getting married so yeah Yeah, there you go oh it's so sweet it happens we are molly and arthur yay (laughs) well and and what i think in the bigger picture of this series i think this is why when Joe started kind of giving away what happened to the characters via interviews in Pottermore after Deathly Hallows was released, people were kind of raising eyebrows at who got paired with who. Like, so many people were expecting Luna and Neville to get together. and The that... film says this too, you know. That's yeah, in the, film, in the film's canon, that's, that's, that's what happened. But then, of course, in the book canon... She went off with Rolf Scamander, who a bunch of people were like, who's that? Of course, everybody yeah. knows who he is now. But Joe um, said that they likely had a fling. So, yeah, she yeah. mentioned that like post movie. So I feel like the movie was because but so she, many people but she, appro- it. she approved. She approved of the movie. So oh, that gets into such dangerous territory. <laughs> oh, yes, it, it does. It goes back to that whole what is and isn't canon debate, exactly. right? Which we will not God. crack open right now. Nope. Yes, but um, <laughs> that is the end of the discussion from last week's podcast question of the week. And with that, we head into what is seen and unforeseen in chapter 26. Eight dung on bridge. Eight dung on bridge. Eight dung on bridge. Chapter 26. Seen and unforeseen. As February rolls into March, Quidditch is back on everyone's mind. Unfortunately, Ginny's seeker capabilities can't make up for Ron's lack of keeper skills, and the team makes an embarrassing loss, takes takes an embarrassing loss, rather, to Hufflepuff. In a bright spot of the year, Harry's interview is released in the Quibbler to the interest of the wizarding public, both in and out of Hogwarts, and to the fury of Dolores Umbridge. Her coinciding release of Educational Decree Number 27 only encourages every Hogwarts student to give the article a read. Harry's visions through Voldemort become more intense as he witnesses a vital conversation about the Dark Lord's plans. Harry also manages to finally break through the mysterious door that he's been dreaming of all year, only to find more doors behind it. Doors on doors on doors. (laughs) Inception (laughs) doors. But this development is overshadowed, as Professor Trelawney is nearly ousted from Hogwarts by Umbridge, only to have Dumbledore step in with a surprise replacement instructor for divination. So, 
a lot happens in this chapter. There's a lot to cover here. And actually, the first one I wanted to talk about, because it's interesting how it's written um, and how it's dealt with, but Quidditch comes back. And Yay. we haven't talked about Quidditch in a while, actually. It feels like forever. Um, and the interesting thing with it returning is that Hermione actually talks about the social aspect of Quidditch in relation to Hogwarts. And on page 574 of the American edition, she says, she makes a rather provocative statement. She says, that's the trouble with Quidditch, said Hermione absentmindedly, once again bent over her rune translation. It creates all this bad feeling and tension between the houses. She looked up to find her copy of Spellman's Syllabary and caught Fred, George, and Harry looking at her with expressions of mingled disgust and incredulity on their faces. Well, it does, she said impatiently. It's only a game, isn't it? Hermione, said Harry, shaking his head. You're good on feelings and stuff, but you just don't understand about Quidditch. Maybe not, she said darkly, returning to her translation again. But at least my happiness doesn't depend on Ron's goalkeeping ability. <laughs> So there's a lot, actually, in that statement on uh, from Hermione, because in this chapter, I was kind of keeping Hermione's statement in mind about the tension between the houses. And in this chapter, we see a lot of breakdowns of tension in these high-stakes kind of situations we've been put in thanks to Umbridge. One of them being that Luna, we will see, happily joins the Gryffindors at the table. She actually sits down with them. Um, for breakfast when Harry's article comes out. And another, which I know Caleb will want to talk about, hmm. is McGonagall jumps in to support Professor Trelawney. Yes. Um, and eventually all and... the professors do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But, of course, McGonagall being an especially shocking um, one to support Trelawney. But we see a yeah. lot of that kind of breakdown of those previous tensions in light of this, this kind of bad situation we've been put into. Does Hermione maybe have... A point. She's a girl. <laughs> you know, this is how I feel about football because I'm like, everybody's mad and everybody's hitting each other. I don't get the point. Why are you watching this? Yeah, but, but that's, that's not all girls. I mean, girls like sports too. So, but she's like this girly girl. I think you know this is a way to again show that that they just talked about feelings where she's the expert and she knows everything, and then she goes to talk about sport and the boys are sitting there. Oh God, woman, you don't get the point. <laughs> But but saying that, like, they don't understand the game is very different from what Hermione is saying here. Mm -hmm. Because obviously she watches Quidditch, she understands it, she enjoys it, she goes to matches. Obviously, this wouldn't be here if Joe wasn't trying to make a point about something. So I agree. I think that there's definitely something kind of hidden in here, for sure. I just found it interesting, too, because Rowling really... And she even said, actually, in, an, in a previous interview that... that um, Quidditch and Defense Against the Dark Arts are the only things that Harry's better at than Hermione. Um, so these are the kind of shining star things for Harry that he ha he's very skilled at. But we've also got Hermione on the other side questioning Quidditch's place and what it does to the houses. Um, I know a lot of people have compared Quidditch to just like any like sport that you have at a high school or college. And the idea that you kind of rally around that sport. 
Caleb, I feel you understand a lot more about that than me. Can you speak a little more about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, like, when I read this, this, like, what Hermione's saying does not seem unique to Quidditch to me. It's, this is competition. This is sports. Like, growing up, um, like, when you're in high school and you're, like, playing football and basketball, you're on the same team with the people you're in school with. But growing up, like, in, like, uh, youth sports leagues, you're, like, my best friends growing up, we were all on different teams and stuff. And, like, we were competitive in the games. We wanted to, like, get to the playoffs or whatever it was called at that point. But um, we also, like, had to separate it um, when we were, like, back at school or something. Um, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, I think Hermione, she like, she's pointing out something that's true. Like, it definitely creates this strife in some senses, but it does so for some people more than others. Like, in the previous chapter, we see Harry and Cho talking just candidly and casually about um, their matches against one another, laughing about it. I mean, competition, it comes out when it, you're in the moment. Um, but, like, otherwise, I don't see Quidditch as the driving force for house strife. I mean, you have Luna, who's obviously the one showing it, that she supports Gryffindor. She makes this really outrageous hat. Um, I think <laughs> this. I don't think this is unique to Quidditch at all. I don't think it's unique to creating strife in the houses. I mean, obviously, we have that element in this book because of things going on, but... I, I don't, I'm not with Hermione on this, really. Well, and it's interesting, too, that you bring up Luna and her hat, because I was thinking back to the previous books where when Rowling always never fails to mention that when when it comes down to the finals and it seems to coincidentally always be Gryffindor versus Slytherin, um, <laughs> the Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff tend to rally around Gryffindor. Um, they always end up choosing a side to support um, mm-hmm. so they're, they're, the houses sometimes do break down that tension and perhaps that's, that gets back again to the point we always go to. And that's mentioned in this chapter and many chapters in order that Slytherin just does not yield compared to the other houses, um, in these years at Hogwarts, that Slytherin never gets to break down that barrier and really hold hands with the other houses. Um, too prideful. Yeah. The first time I read the book, I read it at, as this, um, you know, once, as I just said, uh, Hermione is like clever with the feelings and the boy is clever with the sport. Um, but it's also some kind of foreshadowing to that. She's not right because this, once you said that Luna is joining the Gryffindor table, McGonagall supports Trelawney, the only teachers support Trelawney. So it's also a way for Joe to show that everyone is different, that it's not all just hate and competition, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, like Caleb said, perhaps Quidditch isn't the root of the problem. Not um, at all. I think it's an outlet, you know. For it's just a way a to show it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And yep. speaking of the way that Quidditch is portrayed in this particular chapter, <laughs> oh gosh. my, it is a quick and dirty recap that we get with this Quidditch summary. And I kind of boiled that down to a quote from Rowling in her Leaky Cauldron slash MuggleNet interview back in July of 2005, where she said after the release of Half-Blood Prince, To be honest with you, Quidditch matches have been the bane of my life in the Harry Potter books. (laughs) They are necessary in that people expect Harry to play Quidditch, but there is a limit to how many ways you can have them play Quidditch together and for something new to happen. So apparently the <laughs> filmmakers latched onto this comment and just was like, none of We're the Quidditch ever cut it out. zero, none. <laughs> but it's also a way for her to, like, what is it's called, um, to forget it. Um, I, I, I can't find the word right now, but, you know, forget the match never happened. We're going to 
look away with Joe. We are not going to describe it because it was so painful and so embarrassing. You know, we are all cheering for Gryffindor during the fights because Harry's there. And um, mm-hmm. it's just such an embarrassing fight. So she, she cannot make herself describe it because it's just so awful. Yeah, that, that I, I do like that it's kind of written that way. So it's not her saying like, oh, I'm being lazy because I don't want to write Quidditch anymore. It's all, like exactly. you said, Zini, it's like her saying, oh, I just can't bear to write about it because they lost by 10 points to Hufflepuff. Exactly. Like, <laughs> right. And that's how she writes it. And and which I think is definitely a testament to Rowling because for these, for I forgot just how, how kind of, how it syncs with you for these first few pages of the chapter. You weren't at that Quidditch match, but you feel like you saw it. Um Joe, if you yeah. ever want to uh, modify the books and you need someone to write unique Quidditch matches, <laughs> I am your guy. I will write those oh, yeah. for days. I can think of plenty of different things. <laughs> I mean, there's how many fouls? Like, oh, like 500, I'm there's pretty sure. There's tons. A lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's five, hundreds, 700 yeah. something. It's a lot, yeah. yeah. So, so. so, yes, we we get our quick and dirty recap of Quidditch. Um, we're going to see be seeing that a lot more in the books yeah. as they go on, tragically. Quidditch is kind of nearing the end of its life in the Harry Potter series. So we 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 take a bow to you, Quidditch. We miss you. But there is still one really great moment yes. to come with Quidditch. The moment. <laughs> oh, yes. I say. Yes. Um, and I wanted to say before we move on, speaking of quick and dirty things. <laughs> um, so I did a little bit of research. And in this chapter, okay, so we all know, we've all joked about this, how no one at Hogwarts takes a bath. Ever. They don't. Okay. But they do in this chapter. <laughs> right. This is one of only four mentions in the entire series. They have one bath for all seven years. <laughs> Use it well. It's one mention of only four in the entire series of actually somebody bathing. So like the word <laughs> bathroom is used all the time and bathrobes are used all the time. And when I was doing my search, Bethilda Bagshot came up a lot. But um, <laughs> yeah, this is there's only four times that bathing is mentioned, so... Obviously, when Cedric tells Harry to take a bath and when that happens in Goblet, Slughorn, um, when he's talking about the intruder alarm, he says, oh, I was in the bath. And then the third one is Floor goes off to take a bath in the chapter Ghoul in the Pajamas in Deathly Hallows, plus this one where it says Ron and Ginny went off for baths after dinner. I thought it was so rare and amazing that I just wanted to bring it up. We don't have to talk about it. It's pretty gross. Yeah. Well, we can move on. Well, <laughs> hashtag please take a bath. <laughs> well, I can smell you from here. The, uh, right. the only thing I think of in relation to that from Pottermore is when she kind of revealed, thanks to the discussion about how the Chamber of Secrets got connected to the Hogwarts plumbing, which incited a lot more uh, conversation than you would probably ever think about the Hogwarts plumbing system. Um, she revealed that wizards used to just relieve themselves wherever they stood and then they'd just vanish whatever the mess was. And I always wondered if they don't just, like, if they're feeling lazy and they don't want to bother to take a bath, if they just, like, turgio the dirt off themselves, just magic themselves clean, and they're like, good enough. (laughs) But what about, like, greasy hair and, like... Well, Snape is proof that that doesn't matter. Yeah, but that's Snape. His hair might be naturally oily. <laughs> it's products, all of it. I don't know. I don't know. Like, because to think of people like Slughorn or Fleur taking a bath, they seem like the kind of people who would do that because they're very yeah. into their appearance and very excessive in that way anyway. Um, sure. This is a serious matter, you guys. I was thinking about right. this just a few days ago because I was watching Goblet of Fire and the part where 
Harry comes out of that little side door and he's got a toothbrush. And I was like, oh, where have you been? Is there a bathroom? Right. <laughs> Did you shower? I mean, clearly bathrooms exist because, like I said, they're mentioned a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> especially in Chamber of Secrets for yes. obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. But so. moving on from the toilet humor of Harry Potter, we go into the big moment of this chapter, which is the release of the Quibbler interview. Yay. It is out, and the response is phenomenal and insanely immediate. Uh, Harry gets a few letters from people the morning of the release, um, which is pretty amazing. I love that the the response is so varied from the letters from you're crazy to I totally believe you. Um, yeah. But probably... And they're so concerned about it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, but... Probably the most interesting aspect of this is Umbridge's attempt to curb people reading the article. Ugh. It's Fail. so hilarious. Like, <laughs> she's so dense. Yeah. What's she Sucks doing? to suck, yo. No, it's like she clearly has no idea how teenagers work mm-hmm. at all. Or humans. I mean, I don't even think this I is suppose. like reserved for teenagers. Fair enough. Do you guys do you, do you guys remember? Um, of course, it's a book, and it was also adapted into a pretty excellent adaptation of um, Roald Dahl's Matilda. And mm-hmm. yeah. you know the Trunchbull, who's played coincidentally by Pam Ferris, who played Aunt Marge in the third Harry mm-hmm. Potter film. Yeah. And there's this wonderful, this great part where she's like, "Children, nasty little things. Glad <laughs> I never was one." And <laughs> and I kind of feel like Umbridge is in the same vein of that. Yeah, yeah. Yep. maybe so. Especially mm-hmm. because this book really, like we talked about with Harry and Cho's date, really pushes how teenagers work and how insightful our narrator, Joe, is and into how teenagers behave. And for Umbridge to be so clueless as to say, I'm going to ban all the magazines, so of course they won't read them. Um, just completely hopeless. Over-reliance on the rule of law. Yeah, yeah, almost tragic. And which is, again, why I would love to find out more about her on Pottermore. Oh yeah, that oh, oh really that would be great. Her oh. background story, something about why she's so mean. Yes, her horrible. She never childhood. had enough hugs. As, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one never hugged her. <laughs> but the other interesting thing here um, is the reactions of a few people who we uh, pass by in this chapter, including Seamus as well as Cho Chang, and Cat has also pointed out Dumbledore even has a little reaction to all of this. Um, so interesting very kind of sea of reactions here. You guys want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, the, I guess the, the part I wanted to point out was um, on page 580 of the U.S. edition. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Harry. It says, for some reason, he glanced up at the staff table as he said this. He had a strangest feeling that Dumbledore had been watching him a second before, but when he looked, Dumbledore seemed to be absorbed in conversation with Professor Flitwick. Do you think, I mean, that just kind of really stood out to me this time. I'm not Is this when Umbridge sure. is asking him about the article? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. He, She's like, um, P- Harry's like, yeah, people have written to me because I gave an interview about what happened to me last June. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think too much of it. I just assumed that it was Dumbledore sees that Umbridge is targeting Harry, and so he's like a brief glance to see what's going on. I guess I didn't think of it more than that. I, I don't know. I felt like it might be an allusion to, you know, the con- the weird connection that's happening with Voldemort and Dumbledore and Harry. 
And that's why he knew or he felt that Dumbledore was watching him because yeah, of that connection? Maybe. I'm ah. not sure. Like I said, it just really stuck out to me this time for some reason. I'd never really thought about that little paragraph before. I always interpreted it as just another one of those moments, because we'll, we'll see this again at the end of the chapter, but another one of those moments where, kind of like what you guys discussed with Steve Vanderark, that Dumbledore is how aware Dumbledore is of things that are going on in the school. Mm. Um, because for him to be eyeing Harry when Umbridge, because Umbridge has confronted Harry plenty of times um, about wrongdoing, but in this particular instance, he's giving him a very close watch. I I almost kind of interpreted this as Dumbledore being very proud of what Harry did. Um, like it was the right. Yeah, move. exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought that too. Especially because Dumbledore in this book does not get to tell Harry to do many things or help him along like he has in the past four. Um, this is Harry really taking his independence and his kind of go get him streak to a next, like the next level. This is, this is like full on rebellion. Um, so, but, but it doesn't even say that Dumbledore was actually looking at him. Well, yeah, I, I see when I, when I read those things, I always feel that whenever the, the narration implies something, we have to take it that it is telling us that that happened. So do you think the narration's fibbing to us here? No, I'm not exactly really sure, to be honest. <laughs> well, no, it's a good point for... I, I like the idea, too, that there's something about the Harry's connection with Voldemort that makes him detect Dumbledore staring at him. At least a little bit more yeah. than usual. Yeah, yeah like, I, I don't know, I guess, because I, you know, because we, you know, we see in this chapter that Harry can see out of Voldemort's eyes, I have a feeling that Voldemort can see out of Harry's and I don't know. I mean, he's already stuck out the back of someone else's head, so why not <laughs> Harry's as well? I don't know. Well, and, you know, we talked about this, too, with in the Occlumency chapter about how legitimacy works. And, you know, I, I've always assumed that Dumbledore is extra super powerful at legitimacy compared to your average person. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't, I would assume that he doesn't need eye contact to do legitimacy. It helps him, I'm sure. But I've, I always figured he doesn't need it. Um, cause I've always thought that whenever Dumbledore's kind of taken a look at Harry, he is sometimes scanning him and saying, well, what are you up to? Let's see what's going on lately. Um, that would make sense how he knows everything that's going on. Yeah. yeah. And for, for so <laughs> to be peeking in Harry's mind while Voldemort is actively looking out of it could definitely be dangerous. Right. Hmm. Um, something to ponder. I'll be curious what the listeners think. So let me know. Please. Yes, from well, yes, because from this chapter onwards, the uh, connection between Harry and Voldemort is only increasing very quickly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that is definitely something to keep in mind. And uh, the Quibbler section kind of ends with this very fascinating piece of magic: a giant poster of the cover <laughs> made by the Weasley twins that talks to people. It doesn't say much, <laughs> um, but it talks in Harry's voice. Um, I just thought that was an interesting bit of magic. And it's mentioned that it is a, quote, talking spell that is used on the poster to make it speak. Um, I thought it was interesting that you can just cast a spell on something and it comes out as the voice of the person and they can say things that they haven't actually said. Yeah, it's, that's interesting. That seems like a stretch of magic. Are we? St- yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. <laughs> like <laughs> taking I pictures mean- also takes people's voices too. Well, hmm, I don't know. Fred and George are pretty clever. 
I mean, they are. Hermione, uh, Hermione even questions how they make the, you know, they do the extendable thing with the hat, the mm. invisibility thing with the hat. I don't know. I feel like they're smarter than uh, they get credit for. They probably took some of Harry's blood while he was asleep. <laughs> 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 it's setting into some horror movie now. Well, and even though they're not quite going to get their shining moment yet, it is worth shouting out to Fred and George in this chapter because we are seeing the seeds of their own little rebellion that's going to happen in just a few chapters. Probably one of oh. uh, the top favorite moments from mm-hmm. Order of the Phoenix is brewing here in this chapter. From all the series. <laughs> and you know, it's so awesome. <laughs> for the record, Sinia, I think that Fred and George would write a killer horror movie. Oh, just yeah. saying. They would. I would watch it. Pun not intended, but very fun. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and they yet are tragically fun. fitting. Yes. <laughs> um, so, after all of this celebration over the Quibbler, Harry heads to bed, and he sees a, probably, yet again, the visions are getting more and more vivid, and this one is full of insider details. Uh, we see Voldemort talking to both Rookwood and Avery, about the previous incidents in the Department of Mysteries. And really, I didn't want to talk too much about the actual thing they were talking about because Hermione and Harry and Ron, for once, actually figure out pretty much everything, um, impressively, all together, put their heads together, and they actually get it right, what's going on. Um, They just don't know what the weapon is at this point. But what was interesting to me, and something I've thought about with previous reads of the book for myself, I don't know if you guys have encountered this, but... The the issue comes up for me in this in this writing about Harry's the 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 perspective we're reading this moment from. I don't know if this happened with you guys in previous reads, but I was always confused by this these sections um, about Harry and how he's narrating it as himself, but as Voldemort. Um, it always threw me off. Like, I've, I've never been quite a fan of these sections, perhaps not so much until now. You guys are probably all like, Michael, you don't even get it. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Michael, you don't get Michael, it. Michael, you just don't get <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> no, I mean, it never threw me off. It, I guess it made sense to me. I do, I don't know, I like all the references to, I like how it says, you know, whispered Harry, asked Harry, and then they're talking about, like, the spidery white hands. and yeah. Well, and the more I think it's about so it, the more impressive the writing is to get us in, as we always, we've been saying these last three chapters, <laughs> like, there's a very Inception-like situation going on here, where there's mm-hmm. a lot of minds in different places, Um but I, I just thought it was fascinating how Rowling manages to write this so successfully. Um, again, for me, it took me a while. But this is a, a just really impressive writing. I, I, just, I was thinking back, too, to last week with Cheryl and kind of her, probably her brain, kind of trying not to snap in two with continuity issues on these parts. <laughs> I wish we could have her comment on this section because I'm sure she has something super smart to say about it mm-hmm. and we're not doing it any justice. <laughs> <laughs> She's got all the insider knowledge. That's the problem. Yeah, but she does. That's true. The other interesting thing about this vision to me is that Ron and Hermione have very different reactions to it. Ron tells Harry to go tell Dumbledore all about it. Hermione tells Harry to suppress it and not talk about it anymore. Who do we think is right? 
Is there a common ground here? Is one of them more right than the other? What should we... Because as we discussed, perhaps Occlumency wasn't going to even work anyway since this is a Horcrux connection. Yeah, and um, the Horcrux thing, you know, because I thought that now Harry's seeing things through Voldemort instead of through Nagini. She's called Nagini in English too, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, great. Um, <laughs> I just had to be sure so I didn't say anything nonsense to you guys. Um, but is it because Harry's getting closer to Voldemort and they're getting closer to this... Horcrux thing is it it's, is it some kind of foreshadowing from from Joe? Do you guys think? I think with Nagini, we saw that incident through the eyes of Nagini because Voldemort was in Nagini at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All I right. don't think Harry has any connection to Nagini. I think who's another Horcrux? I think he just has a connection to Voldemort, which is like the how would you say it? The master body. <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah, primary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, primary. That's the word. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think Ron is right here. I don't think it's a good idea at all for Harry to suppress. So Yeah, I completely disagree with Hermione. Sorry, Hermione, you lose points there. And normally um, she wants him to tell everything to Dumbledore. Why is she changing her mind all of a sudden? Yeah. Yeah, that's strange. But, well, I think she, maybe she has resigned to the fact at this point that there's no reasonable way Harry's going to be able to tell Dumbledore because of how evasive he is. Yeah. Mm. That's possible. Yeah, it's 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 such a. I, I've always been shocked by this part because I would have expected, like you guys said, I would have expected Hermione to be on Ron's side with this. Um, she, but if, and if he's not telling Dumbledore, he should be telling McGonagall. She was the one that re- responded to him um, with the snake, um, seeing Arthur getting injured, and Harry reacted to McGonagall being so believing of him. I don't understand why he doesn't talk to her more about these things if he can't talk to Dumbledore. Yes. Yeah, she's yeah. she's clearly proven herself as trustworthy and on his side. Yeah. Very yeah. frustrating for me personally that this yeah. doesn't happen. <laughs> of course. No, I think it I think that frustrates you in the same way it frustrates me that as I've discussed before that Harry never confides to Lupin anymore. Like mm. these are two people who and we will see this throughout the rest of the series that these two people have proved themselves very tight-lipped and very cautious with sensitive information um mm-hmm. and even if harry didn't want to communicate this directly to dumbledore i think if he took it to mcgonagall and he wished for her to take it to dumbledore yeah. she would that's certainly the superior route to telling snape to get it to dumbledore, <laughs> which is the only other possible route at this point well right. and speaking of snape <laughs> another occlumency yeah. lesson another horrible horrible occlumency lesson he he seems to creep into every single episode i mean like i know he's in this <laughs> that's chapter, what he does but, but like even when he's not in the chapter he's on i don't know he's standing in the corner in the shadows we know yes he's with there. his naturally oily hair <laughs> <laughs> well and the one big thing about this chapter that uh, as far as the occlumency progress, is Harry manages to succeed. Why? <laughs> is what I have to ask here. Because up to this point, the only news we've been getting about the occlumency lessons is that Harry is failing miserably. And that Snape is not giving him any more direction than he was giving him from the start. Any theories as to why this particular lesson is better? Perhaps thinking about things that have changed since the last occlumency lessons? So, like, are you asking if, like, why he thought to do the shield charm now and not before? Well, the narration also says that the that Snape the the memories that Snape's breaking into are not as prominent, and Harry is managing to see through them to Snape. Oh. Okay, I got. He you. can go back to reality. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Why? The only thing I wrote down was like, you know, he's in this teenage years, and we have just talked about all this about the dating and the awkwardness and stuff. Um, so I just wrote here that enough is enough. You know that he's feeling so humiliated, and Snape keeps bugging him and saying, "Come on, you're not good enough. Do it, do it. You you try harder, Potter." And all of a sudden, he's like. Damn, you are not going to win this fight. And I think that he finds the courage and the will to do it all of a sudden. That was the best theory I could come up with. So in that way, we're you're suggesting perhaps that the best way to teach occlumency is to break somebody's spirit. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. Seems, uh, that no, seems but, quite harsh. No, but I, I think that's what makes Harry turn at this point, you know, that... Snape is finding all these things that's so personal to Harry that he he just can't allow him to do it anymore. Not saying that's the right way, but that's what Snape does, and apparently it works for Harry, in this chapter, at least. Well, and also, if you notice, the page before that happens, Harry's talking about all the awful things that happened to him during the week. Hmm. And at the very end, it says... Um, he very much wished he could have talked to Sirius about it, but that was out of the question. So he tried to push the matter to the back of his mind. So he was already trying to get things out to suppress memories and the like. Yeah. So I feel like maybe, maybe he was just in the right mindset. He was in the right place, had so many crappy things going on that he was already trying to forget about Mm -hmm. that maybe this was just coincidence and luck. Well, because I was going to throw out this, because I think that's actually a pretty good theory, especially with the way that the chapter is written and what it suggests. But I was actually going to throw out that perhaps since Harry's, that there might be some correlation between Harry's more vivid, direct connection with Voldemort and the improvement. I'm not really sure where I was going to go with it. Thought maybe (laughs) if you guys could hash it out more. But that's like, I was just wondering, because this is the first dream that Harry's had. I think directly from Voldemort's eyes. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I was just wondering if, if because that connection is intensifying, if there's some kind of improvement because Voldemort is also a, an accomplished legilimens, right? Like he can do it perfectly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is Harry even perhaps acquiring some of Voldemort's skill in that? Because Harry's acquired other skills of Voldemort's. Why not? Okay, we're gonna interpret- good. We're gonna interpret. <laughs> it seems super circular too. Like, right? He's working on occlumency to like stop Voldemort's attempts at legitimacy, but maybe he's gaining some of that ability secondhand, <laughs> which is affecting his ability to do well <laughs> in occlumency against Snape's legitimacy. It's so it's basically very these lessons were the worst idea ever. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and that, I think, has been established many times and will continue to be. Um, but you know, if we hadn't had this lesson, we wouldn't know these memories from Snape. And that's like, Snape is my, my favorite character in all the books. I love Snape because I knew from the start there was something about him, that he was very important. He couldn't be evil because there was something about his energy and stuff. And this is what the chapter like. It opens for there's something about Snape we don't know. Um, there's more to him than this greasy-haired, stupid guy. <laughs> well, and, and, Although I would disagree when you say that he's not evil, because, you know. Well, and, But that's a whole other topic. Sorry, Mike. Well, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that, that topic's actually perfect, because that goes into my next point, um, which is, of course, that when Harry uh, successfully gets through uh, to with the lesson and 
casts a shield charm on Snape, it reverses the memory reading effect, and Harry starts reading Snape's memories, as Senia mentioned. And what we see is absolutely fascinating. Oh, yeah. um, we see visions of Snape's parents arguing. Uh, the Half-Blood Prince. The Half-Blood Prince. We see, we see Snape in complete oh. solitude shooting flies down from the ceiling. Which, I mean, obviously, because remember we talked about I don't even remember when it was. If Harry had actually like gotten that fly to oh wait, yeah with Axio, oh, yeah. <laughs> so clearly, like flies are big enough to be magic. Yes, magic works on flies. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this is definitive proof. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and um, interestingly, we also see a moment of severe ineptitude. On Snape's part, when he is attempting to fly a broomstick and a girl is laughing at him. No confirmation. Probably not Lily, since Harry would have recognized her. Um, no definitive confirmation, yeah. but probably not. Um, I did is have a Snape moment. Snape on the broom? I Say, always thought, thought it was James, and then Lily was standing there, like, giggling at him. And he was, and then Snape was standing, like, envious and looking at it, because that's how it's translated to in the Danish book, that she's not, like, ha, 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 laughing, mm. that it's, hee, Okay, we gotta find that page. I'm it's weird, yeah, because I, <laughs> yeah, I would have also thought that Harry would have recognized them if it was James and okay. Lily. Yeah, I, I assumed that it wasn't James and Lily. Here we go. It says, it simply says, a girl was laughing as a scrawny boy tried to mount a bucking broomstick. Mm-hmm. And our book says a black-haired boy, so I just thought oh. that would automatically. I, I don't know because I, they're oh. history and stuff. So yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. interesting. Well, and because Snape does have black hair and he is scrawny, so he fits the description too. I think I'm because I did always <laughs> interpret it as as like Cat and Caleb were saying that it's that it's Snape trying to ride the broom. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But that's interesting that a different translation gives it more ambiguity. Uh, the uh, uh, and I won't. Go too into it. But of course, since Noah's not here, I did have to say, I was reading it and I was like, oh, Snape's not good on a broomstick, huh? (laughs) (laughs) We knew that was coming. (laughs) So many possibilities. Uh, Noah, please, if you're hearing this, come by the forums or the main site and leave your thoughts on that. (laughs) I'm sure you'd have plenty to say. He's fist pumping the air right now as he's listening. Oh, good. Well, and I'm sure the listeners, if you have any creative interpretations of that, please feel free to go there. That's what the main site in the forums are for. <laughs> I particularly don't choose to read it that way. But I do think it I did think it was interesting to show just be, as we were talking before about um Hermione and Harry and the kind of things that they're better at than each <clears throat> other to see Snape not being good at something that Harry excels at. Um she didn't yeah. just pick anything for Snape not to be good at. Uh in particular it was riding a broomstick that Harry sees. Um and what's interesting, too, I always thought is that unlike uh, and, you know, there's obviously different backgrounds with how Harry feels about these characters. But unlike a character like, say, Neville, who Harry finds out some very dark backstory about and sympathizes with even more, despite that Harry kind of makes fun of him throughout the year, even though he likes him generally. Harry finds all of this out about Snape and doesn't really react to the information at all, um, which I've kind of always found fascinating because i harry we always have we've discussed in previous shows is a very empathetic boy um he picks up on people's stuff he doesn't always express it very well but he picks it up really well 
Um, and he absolutely refuses to with Snape. Like, it's a continuing motif until that final mm-hmm. moment, right? He he refuses to get any leeway mm-hmm. to Snape. I just thought that was fascinating because, of course, it depends. I guess that's a reflection, too, on the readers of the time who sided with Snape and those who didn't. Um, which, of course, I wanted to also mention this chapter does not make easy because on page 591 in the American edition, uh, there's a moment where Harry and Snape are having a little bit of back and forth. And um, Snape suggests that Harry feels special by looking into Voldemort's mind. And Harry insists he doesn't. And Snape says, that is just as well, Potter, said Snape coldly, (laughs) because you are neither special nor important. And it is not up to you to find out what the Dark Lord is saying to his Death Eaters. No, that's your job, isn't it? Harry shot at him. He had not meant to say it. It had burst out of him in temper. For a long moment they stared at each other, Harry convinced he had gone too far. But there was a curious, almost satisfied expression on Snape's face when he answered, Yes, Potter. He said, his eyes glinting, That is my job. And on five... Foreshadowing once again. Yes, but interestingly, (laughs) on 593, we also get Harry saying, Can you tell me something? Sir, said Harry, firing up again, why do you call Voldemort the Dark Lord? I've only ever heard Death Eaters call him that. And before Snape gets a chance to answer, we move into the next moment. But I did just want to point out that Joe is ever so cleverly still keeping us on the fence about Snape. Um, Mm -hmm. And she is until the very last book. And that's what's so exciting about the character, because I remember... Uh, especially here in Denmark, we talked about when uh, book uh, 6 came out, that, oh, Snape evil, is he doing it because he had to? And Dumbledore asked him to, or is it because he's actually a Death Eater? And this discussion went on until book 7 came out, of course. But this thing about, you know, the readers making two camps, like the pro and the anti-Snape camps. (laughs) Yeah. And that starts already here, you know. That's so exciting. (laughs) Yeah, I remember. What was that website, the... uh... Dumbledore did not die, or what was that website? Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. But I do agree, Snape is an amazing, amazing character, but he is not a good person. (laughs) But, you know, we learn that's just because he's so... He's a li- yeah. I just believe in the best in people. I think <laughs> I want everyone to be happy. But I, I I think when you learn what's going on and when you see his full memory uh, in the the thing where I can put memories in. What is called on oh, English? The pensive. Oh, what, what do you guys call it in Denmark? Um, in Danish, we say minikal, which means uh, a ball where I can put memories in. So a memory ball. Oh. should translate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> then. I'm really learning cool. a lot of new words today. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, they, you know, he sees James every time he sees Harry, but it, James was this public guy, and so he sees his bully, but he also sees the person who got what he loved the most. So I think Snape's in very deep agony every time he sees Harry. Mm-hmm. I just feel sorry for Snape. <laughs> well, and, you know, it's good to have somebody the, somebody with that perspective Senior, because we don't get a lot of those on the show, especially because all of our all of our hosts don't really feel that way. We're we're a little one sided on the Snape <laughs> issue, so it is actually good to get that uh, uh, other side of the perspective. Because I, the the more I 
go on and and you know i even though we'll we'll continue to talk about snape i do feel it is appropriate to talk about him here actually because we do we always say we'll get to it and actually i think we've gotten to it um (laughs) finally but um for my part you know just there there's so much interesting elements in the harry potter series overall that is kind of uh there's suggestions of nature versus nurture and about choice um and we will, I think the thing about Snape, especially more perhaps than any other character, Dumbledore runs a close second, perhaps, is that kind of why people do what they do. And yeah. I kind of like that Joe never definitively answers it for us. Um, you're free to, I feel like we're we're each free to take our interpretation of people like Snape away from the book and all be correct, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's the great thing about these books, you know, all interpretations are... All right, in some way. Well, that just stems from a very general principle that, like, who is one person to, like, completely judge another, right? Mm. Ours is not to ask why. Ours is but to do (laughs) or die. Um, But as as I mentioned earlier, we are distracted by Snape's double identity when he is about to say something when Trelawney screams out in the Great Hall. And we go upstairs, and in the entrance hall, um, it appears that Trelawney is getting sacked in possibly the most dramatic fashion possible. Oh, this scene. The whole school has turned out to watch. Umbridge is doing a power play by standing at the top of the stairs because she's very short. And Trelawney is at the bottom with her (laughs) cooking sherry, and she is very, very drunk and very unkempt. So the uh, interesting thing about this scene and how it's written in the book of course, is that Trelawney is holding a bottle, an empty bottle of cooking sherry, implying that she is not quite all there at this moment. You think you think her and Hagrid drink together? <laughs> they should. If they In don't. the adult they version, definitely. <laughs> they, they do now. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, actually, because I think, actually, till, till the movie came out, I don't know about you guys, but I did feel that this is actually one kind of not perhaps on the same level, but akin to it, this is another one of those iconic moments from Order of the Phoenix, the sacking of Trelawney. Um, because there's so much going on in this scene, just in how who, the power play of this scene. And uh, I, don't, I don't know about you guys, but speaking personally, I was very disappointed that this did not end up in the film. Um, and I say that because Emma Thompson noted that she did not get to play drunk in this scene and she had actually said in in an interview that she really really wanted to um and that she wanted to portray it closer to the way the book did it and that's right i'm kind of wondering what that adds or takes away from this scene um and what's what was the better approach perhaps i think it makes her a little bit more um i don't want to say pathetic but um a little more, uh, um, I guess for lack of a better word, pathetic. <laughs> yeah, when she's drunk, she is. Because, you know, when she's standing there with the alcohol bottle, um, you, you cannot get any lower. And then Umbridge is still, like, jumping down on her and hitting her with words and just standing there, I'm so much better than you. And she's just so humiliated. Like, it can't get any worse, but when they take the alcohol thing away from the movie, it's, like, a little bit lighter in some way. Do you get what I mean? 
yeah, what what is the word that I'm looking for? It's like... Well, pathetic doesn't necessarily... Pathetic has negative connotations just kind of in the mindset, but, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, it can mean what you're thinking, Kat. I get what you're thinking. Mm. Um, okay, but what's the word? <laughs> what's the word? <laughs> <laughs> There's a good word somewhere out there. I keep thinking of amicable, and I know that's, no, not, that's the not, word. that's not the word. <laughs> that's not um, it. <laughs> Is there a word for this in Danish, Senia? <laughs> I, um, I thought about humiliation to be, uh, when Kat said what she said. Um, mm. To be humiliated. Yeah. Hmm. And she's like, you feel sorry for her in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, of course, I, I don't know. <laughs> surprising because Trelawney is not a character we often feel sorry for. Um, and speaking of that, Caleb, have at it. McGonagall. <laughs> Woo! She's really awesome. <laughs> She's always awesome. Yeah, I mean, because obviously one of our first teacher-to-teacher, inter- um, like, not interactions, but sort of um, clashes... I get mm. clashes, I should say, without uh, lack of better word, is Harry, you know, McGonagall to asking about who was the one. Um, this is back in Sor- Sorcerer's Stone, who was the first one that Trelawney um, prophesied the death of and that she does it every year. And so we get this early idea that McGonagall does not respect Trelawney for her magic. Um, she doesn't respect divination in general, but she particularly does not like how Trelawney is very absurd with it. Um, but then in this moment, because Dumbledore is not there first to save his teacher, God forbid, um, <laughs> McGonagall is the first one to step up when Umbridge is basically kicking a dying dog on the floor. And she's the first Aww. one to step up and defend um, Trelawney, despite whatever misgivings she may have about the magic she teaches and her teaching practices themselves. She's defending one of um, Hogwarts' own, and she's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She she might she might not agree with her or the way she teaches or whatever, but she's yeah the home team, right? Mm-hmm. For the home team, she's a friend, right? And the word was deplorable. There we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. Brought to you by the word deplorable. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Little More. Um, well. I, I see. I knew if I threw it to Caleb, he'd have the perfect words to say this, about yeah. McGonagall. And this yeah. is obviously just the instigator for the other teachers, specifically Sprout and Flitwick, mm. also jumping in. It's like McGonagall breaks through the ceiling and um, gets everyone else on board. They feel like finally it's okay to jump in and then help Trelawney after mm-hmm. Dumbledore says gives this little speech that um, he still has the power to both keep Trelawney in house, even though she's not teaching, and well, I don't. Michael's probably about to get to this. Oh, no, absolutely. But but actually, I wanted to also just point out because perhaps, and I think, the again, the more I go through this reread, the more I think of how the movie has especially affected my view of Order of the Book, um, more than any of the other movies did. Um, but I think, I remember when the movie really pushed the idea that, you know, they marketed this movie as The Rebellion Begins. Um, yeah. And it really happened, the rebellion, quote unquote, really happened. They're, they marketed it as kind of like the DA and the kind of the things that actually happen at the ministry. But I think sometimes perhaps we forget that even though, and even in the book, um, it's very much stressed. A lot of people remember, of course, Fred and George's big rebellion that will be coming up in the career advice chapter. Um, 
But really, I think that we we should remember before we leave this chapter um, that this is the chapter where I think the rebellion really begins. Um, yeah. School-wide. We're seeing a lot of unexpected truces coming together in this particular chapter. And speaking of unexpected truces, Dumbledore walks in at the very last minute, as he is wont to do, just happening to have been strolling the grounds or something. <laughs> we, we're not really sure until all of a sudden um, he confronts Umbridge and... Um, says that he has, in fact, found the perfect replacement for Trelawney, who, by the way, can still stay at the castle because Umbridge does not have the power to kick her out of her uh, home. But uh, in comes trotting, quite literally, behind Dumbledore, <laughs> Ferenz the centaur, who we have met only once before um, and who's going to become very important. And we'll, of course, talk about him a little later. I just had to point out how... The, again, as we mentioned before, with Dumbledore's awareness of things that are going on, even though he's not always physically present, how on point to bring in a centaur for your divination teacher when Umbridge is the one you're trying to piss off? <laughs> because he's a half human, you know. This is like, ha! I win. Double up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a this is a very again. Now you I- have a giant and a centaur. Is that what you call them? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. What do you okay. what do you so, call them? Kentawa. Ooh. So it's that's pretty. It's K and C, you know. Um, so yeah. Um, but I think just just like I'm gonna get all these freaks to make <laughs> the classes, and you can't do anything about it. Wah. Yeah. yeah. This, this <laughs> He's trying to get it, make hell for her. Yeah, it's a it's <laughs> a, a very exciting power play, a one upping on Dumbledore's part, yeah. and he's playing this game very, very well. Um, but we'll. We will soon see as the chapters in the story go on whether Dumbledore is going to win this game. But for now, that is chapter 26, Seen and Unforeseen. And before we move on to the end of the show, I did want to ask, uh, Senia, what, what what are some other kind of more prominent words and names from the Potter series that are changed, that are different, that you know <laughs> of in Danish? Um, uh, Mad Eye Moody, uh, he's called Skragoi, which means he has a horror eye. <laughs> um, um, what is, is is Voldemort still called Voldemort? He's called you know the big characters. They have their real names. Their real um, names. It's mostly people who have these funny names like Mad Eye Moody and Rita Skeeter and stuff. Um, they changed. That's interesting since a lot of the major characters have names that are symbolic. But that's still novel. Not you know to call be called Weasley uh, for a last name. That doesn't mean something as yeah. a word. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the, the other was, words, you know, they can be translated. The names cannot. Because I was thinking of things like, um, you know, like Remus Lupin. Obviously, he's called kind of, Remus Lupin. Still, he's still yeah. Got, yeah, kind of a yeah. giveaway of the whole thing with his story. So I was interested to see if there were any other interesting names that got swapped. Um, but no, it's only the uh, the fun character names, and then the places. Of course, they're called stuff in in Danish instead. What do you what do you call Hogwarts? Do you call it Hogwarts? It's still Hogwarts. It's still called Diagon Alley. Diagon Alley. No, it's called Diagonalslid. Wait, what? Yeah, you know we have A, U, and O. Okay, so now we're going to move on to this week's podcast question of the week, and this one came to me immediately. You guys know how I love theories like this, so here it is. My question is, in this chapter, we see Umbridge try to sack Professor Trelawney. Now, 
of course, both she and Hagrid, um, she meaning Professor Trelawney, were on probation as a result of Umbridge's evaluations. So, why Trelawney? Was it based purely on performance, or was Umbridge working on the orders of someone else? Lord Voldemort, perhaps? Trelawney is, as we later learn, important to his current mission of trying to recover the prophecy. We have suspected, meaning I have suspected, Umbridge was working with and for Lord Voldemort before. Is this just another coincidence, or is she indeed working for the Dark Lord? So there you go. Because remember when I brought up the whole, like, McNair was sent yes. by, yes, all of that. So I, I really think that, I, I, okay, I can't elaborate because I don't want to put words in someone else's <laughs> mouth. So I'm super interested to hear what you guys think about this. Um, Alohamora.mogglenet.com. Also, you can send us audio booze in response to this, so we'll play them. Um, sometimes it's easier to voice your words as opposed to writing them down. So there you go. Send them in. Thanks. And of course, we have to give another thanks to our guest this week, Senior. You were a absolutely fantastic guest. Thank you for. Aww. I hope it was worth the wait. <laughs> I was it just going to say that. Trust me. Oh, oh I'm so happy. <laughs> Wonderful. And you know, you were an, you were a particularly excellent guest. We always like to, if we can ever squeeze you in again before the the whole reread oh, is over, do. we would love to have you back. Because you were. Um, I would love to. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> and it's always good to. It's always fun. To have uh, an opinion from a different country than ours. So yeah. <laughs> it colors the show a little better. So thank you so much, Senior, for being on. You're welcome. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. And if you would like to be on the show as well, then you should check out the Beyond the Show page, which is on alohamora.mogulnet.com. If you have a set of Apple headphones, you're all set. Otherwise, you don't need anything fancy, just something that allows you to record and listen on headphones while we do our recording. And of course, in the meantime, if you just want to keep in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at AlohomoraMN, Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore, on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast, on Snapchat, follow us at MN underscore Alohomora. Of course, our phone number is 206 Go Albus, 206 462 5287. And as I mentioned, Audio Boo, which is actually now called Audio Boom, oddly <laughs> enough, is at alohamora.mugglenet.com. It's free. All you need is a microphone and an internet connection. Send us your comments, your questions, your thoughts on anything. Um, pro- I mean, okay, it should probably relate to what we're talking about or going to talk about or did talk about. Um which I guess is really anything. So just send them in, okay? <laughs> Keep them under 60 seconds so we can play them on the show. And as we have stressed a lot in this particular episode, we have decided that the rebellion begins now. And what better way to rebel than to show your house pride? We have brand new house shirts in our Alohomora store. Uh, your Ravenclaw is showing. Your Hufflepuff, your Gryffindor, your Slytherin, they are all showing. So take check out a shirt and show off your house. Uh, we also have plenty of other products to choose from in the Alohomora store. And of course, we also have ringtones that are free and available on the main Alohomora website. Also, make sure to check out our smartphone app, which is available seemingly worldwide. Prices vary upon location. It has a lot of great things like transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host blogs, and much more. And with that, we are finished with this week's episode. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 104 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore and close that copy of the Quibbler.
Degonel Strell. Oh, the, oh, so close. <laughs> Can you say it, say it again? Say it again. Diagonal Strell. Diagonal Strell. <laughs> I'm not even going oh, to try that. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> the end. <laughs>